I suppose I should say, since the camera's right is not right in front of me, uh, we have this powerful little camera up in the uh, balcony, and um, we the uh, live stream will be a permanent uh, feature of our services. So, wanted to mention that. Um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we are grateful to you that Jesus Christ is our prophet, priest, and king, and we thank you for uh, his reign over us, his reign over the world, his reign over the universe. As I open his holy word and have the responsibility to proclaim it to your people and uh, to the entire world, God, I ask for your spirit to help me. I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, that we become more like Jesus as a result of sitting under his powerful word. We ask in his name. Amen. All right. And, um, if you're visiting with us, uh, our we're moving through the Gospel of Luke, but on the uh, last Sunday of every month, stepping away from Luke into the Psalms. We've been doing that. I'm still taking requests. If you have made a request and I have not preached it, it has somehow gone past me. So um, make that request again if you've given a request and I haven't, haven't uh, preached on that psalm. And uh, this month uh, is Psalm chapter 2. And I'm so glad that God gave us Psalm chapter 2. Uh, I hope it will be encouraging to us this morning. 2020 has been a difficult year. You know, one earth-shaking or a nation-shaking event after another. And instead of our nation drawing together, it's, we're tearing uh, ourselves apart at the seams. In fact, it seems as if there is a coating of acrimony um, across our nation, and even this this acrimony uh, is its own crisis. Uh, there's political brawling about every decision in in regard to how to respond to the coronavirus pandemic. There's political brawling about the rioting and the Black Lives Matter movement. There's political brawling uh, over the economy as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. There's, there's political brawling because this is an election year. And the levels of hatred being expressed towards one another is very concerning. I wonder... Uh, even if we have crossed lines in our animus towards each other that will be difficult to recover from after the election season is over. Psalm 2 gives me great comfort as we live through this moment in human history. As we experience uh, in minute detail uh, the wretched events of 2020 as they unfold around us, Psalms 2 gives us the big picture. Uh, it gives us the big view of things from God's perspective. 
Psalm 2, 2 tells us where history is going. Psalm 2 tells us that the world belongs to Jesus. And he is bringing it into submission to himself. Frankly, as I've meditated on Psalm 2 this week uh, in preparation for this sermon, uh, my attitude towards 2020 has taken a bit of a Copernican revolution. Uh, My weariness with the daily bile spewing from our culture uh, has not disheartened me these past few days as it had these past few months. Psalm 2 has transformed me, I, I would say, into a happy warrior for Jesus. Instead of feeling dispirited, Psalm 2 has reminded me that this acrimony and this hatred has always existed, and it's always been directed toward God himself. We see all this acrimony being directed toward each other, even directed toward us. And Psalm 2 tells us, well, it's always been directed toward God. Uh, The brawling we are experiencing as a nation is just symptomatic of the hatred for God overspilling into expressions of hatred one for another. Uh, When seen in connection with the world's hatred for God, this hatred being expressed between one another as citizens of the United States becomes less intimidating. You know, as, as we see what's happening around us, if you're on social media, you see it coming at you all the time. Um, and to remember that this is just a symptom of the world's hatred towards God. It just it, it helps put in perspective. Uh, what's really happening. Psalm 2 is telling us that God and his purposes are not destroyed or even hindered in the slightest by this national acrimony. We're going to see in Psalm 2 that God laughs at the world. The schemes, the world's schemes and its plots, God mocks it. There are those who are seeing an opportunity to begin shifting this national hostility towards the church. They're openly celebrating the opportunity to try and drive a spike into Christianity, uh, calling it a white man's religion. In Psalm 2, God assures us that he's got this well in hand. Uh, He has installed his king on Zion, on his holy hill. And of course, his king is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, He's the anointed one in verse 2. He's the Messiah. One day, not only in America, but one day every nation will submit to King Jesus. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. And those who refuse to submit to him now, Psalm 2 tells us that they will be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. So can you see why Psalm 2 has been a cause for optimism 
for me as I've studied it this week. Instead of wishing for 2020 to be over, as I had been doing, you know, it's like 2020 can't come and go fast enough. Well, I'm, in, I'm reinvigorated. The battlefield is set. The lines are clearly drawn. The world has painted itself into a self-destructive corner. And Almighty God has promised to conquer the world through Jesus Christ and his all-powerful gospel. 2020 and beyond 2020 is an opportunity then for the church in America to step up and proclaim Jesus Christ boldly in the public square uh, without trying to accommodate the world. And if I can just say a word about this idea, this strategy of accommodation, uh, the strategy of accommodation where the world is, or the church is trying to accommodate the world uh, is akin to Neville Chamberlain's strategy of appeasement towards Hitler. Uh, it was never going to work. Welcoming the church into the world, like so many churches have done, was always going to end badly. As Winston Churchill once said, an appeaser is someone who throws others to the alligators hoping to be the last one eaten. Uh, the acrimony of the world towards God uh, that has always existed will not stop um, just because the church has signaled that it's eager to be accommodating to the world. Uh, just the opposite. Uh, the world will not stop until the church is repurposed for the world's agenda if we accommodate ourselves to the world, if we allow ourselves um, to be like the world in an effort to be liked by the world. Now, I've basically given you uh, what would normally be at the end of the sermon. I've given you the practical application for Psalm 2. So let's spend a few minutes looking at the psalm itself to see why I believe these applications are appropriately drawn from Psalm 2. First of all, it is clear that the world hates God. Look at verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Last month we looked at Psalm 1. In Psalm 1 verse 1, the psalmist warned us not to walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor to stand in the seat or in the way of sinners or to sit in the seat of scoffers. One of the commentators I read on uh, Psalm 2 verses 1 through 3 connected uh, the personal warning to individuals with Psalm 2, this, this uh, mocking of, um, of the world's leaders, and he said, this is what it looks like when the counsel of the wicked and the way of sinners and the seat of scoffers goes international. The rulers of the nations rage, the kings of the earth set themselves together, and they gather in council, and I, this is war council. They're gathering in war council against God. Um, 
And they're doing this because the world hates God. Romans 8, verse 7. Uh, the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. The world hates God, and as R.C. Sproul so famously said, uh, the world would kill God if it could. And so that is the ultimate reason, then, why the Lord Jesus was nailed to the cross. The early church, in fact, connected Psalm 2 uh, with the crucifixion of Christ. In uh, Acts chapter 4, after being persecuted, the early church then gathered in prayer, and they quoted uh, Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3, and then they reminded God, of course God never forgets, but they reminded God of what they had just read in Psalm 2, 1 through 3, um, that the, the world and the world's rulers hate God. And then they, in their prayer, said, God, the Jews and the Gentiles, led by Herod and Pontius Pilate, they all gathered together against your anointed, against Jesus. They raged and they plotted against Jesus to crucify him. And so then they said, my paraphrase, it should come as no surprise that they themselves were being persecuted. And remember what John or what Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So verses 1 through 3 are telling us that the world hates God. Therefore, it detests God's Messiah, the Anointed One, there in verse 2, the Lord Jesus Christ. And because it detests the Messiah, it detests... It despises the Messiah's people, the early church, and us as his followers. While it may at first blush cause us to fear that the world hates us because it hates the Messiah, because it hates God, it should not cause us fear. These first three verses are actually mocking the world and the world's rulers for its foolish hatred of God. The first word in Psalm chapter 2 is the word why. So he says, why do the nations rage? And that why at the beginning of verse 1 carries through the other phrases of verses 1 through 3. Uh, so for instance, we could read Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? Why do the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gather uh, or take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed? Why do they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us? See, by asking why um, the world is raging and plotting against God and against his anointed one, the psalmist is implying that the world has gone insane, that it has lost its mind. Why would, I, why would the world try and rebel against Almighty God? 
One commentator made a comment that's not usually found in a Bible commentary. He said, What suicidal nincompoops these rulers are to be possessed of such a livid rage towards the God who reigns over everything. In other words, the psalmist mocks the world. We, we need not be unduly fearful of the world, even when it's raging most, most loudly like it is today. Because God is the ruler, and it's foolishness to think that the world, in all its noisome rebellion, can ever overcome God or hinder him in the least. Uh, Verses 4 through 6 support this reading of Psalm verse 2. Not only does the psalmist mock the world, but God does too. The world rages against God, and look at what God's doing at him in verses 4 through 6. I'll just read verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The Hebrew imperfect here, um, the Hebrew imperfect tense suggests that, that God doesn't just laugh and then stop. But he's enjoying a belly laugh over this. He continues laughing at them. In other words, God's not phased uh, in the least by the world's rebellion. Now, the mighty, God-hating politicians speak as if they are the true rulers of the world. We see them on television um, speaking with such solemnity about what they've done or what they're uh, going to do. Uh, the crowds cheer them. Oh, you're the best. You're the best. The editorial pages sing their praises. But God laughs at them. He holds them in derision. The world hates God the world hates Christians. The world hates each other. The world seems as if it's on a suicide mission. But our God is not absent. He's laughing at them. And his wrath will soon follow his laughter. Look at verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The world, for all its rage, for all its noise, cannot stop God's judgment because God rules the world. He has installed his king on Zion, his holy hill. So let me ask you, does that encourage you? It encourages me. While the world is going insane these days, Jesus Christ is on the throne of the universe. He is king. He is ruling. He is the almighty sovereign God. What did Churchill say to to Hitler? Um, You know, uh, you do your worst, we'll give you our best. Something to that effect. World. Do your best, or, or do your worst. God's going to give you his best. He's speaking here in verses 5 and 6 
of the judgment, the terror that will come when he pours out his fury against them. There is no other king in this world. As powerful as the politicians think they are, there is no other rival to King Jesus. And that's the point of verse 7. Jesus is the legitimate king because he is God's son. So the psalmist says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said, and now the Lord is speaking. The Lord said to me, the Father speaking to the Son, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. And I think this is a, um, God's way of just reminding us that God, I mean that the Lord Jesus Christ is the rightful King. Throughout the ages, whenever you've had a king, it seems as if you have had a rival to the kingship. You know, if you're in control, there's somebody else that wants to come and take the control away from you. Well, isn't that what the world has tried to do? Kick God off the throne ever since Adam and Eve tried to become their own source of authority in the garden. Mankind has tried to kick God off the throne, be an authority unto ourselves, rule and reign over our own lives, be sovereign over the choices we make. By announcing Christ as his son, God is saying that all other rivals to Christ's kingship are frauds, fakes. And so God has given the nations to Jesus. He has given the nations to none other. Sometimes we hear the church say, the church has power. Other times, the great militaries have power. Jesus is the only king of the nations. Verse 8, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Notice, it's not some nations, it's all the nations. Uh, therefore, the ends of the earth are Christ's possession. Christ rules over a worldwide kingdom. His is an international kingdom. And every square inch of this planet belongs to Him. Every square inch of this universe is His. The dust particles and ice particles floating around Saturn belong to Jesus. So, how does Christ exercise his rule? He exercises and extends his rule through the gospel. Christ's kingdom is a present reality. He is growing his kingdom by conquering souls through the proclamation of his glorious gospel. That's why he's given us the great commission. All authority, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. And then he says to the church, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. 
He rules over all the nations. Now we are to go bring those nations into submission to himself through the preaching of the gospel. Romans 1 verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Not some nations, all the nations. And that same commission that was given to Paul is now given to the church. Or Galatians 3 8, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. The gospel is a worldwide gospel. Christianity is a worldwide religion. There is no other name given under heaven by which man must be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. No one comes to the Father except through Him. Regardless of race, regardless of wealth, regardless of geography, where you live on earth, Jesus Christ is a worldwide Savior. He is the only Savior. And as Christians live for Christ in the world, His rule becomes visible to a watching world. Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put a light, a light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are called as God's people, to be warriors in Christ's kingdom. But the weapons we fight with are not the weapons that the world uses. You want to see how the world fights? Go on Twitter. What a cesspool. I go on Twitter. That's how I got my news. And it's pretty uh, depressing sometimes. But I've decided... I don't trust the news media. I've got to go and just search things out myself. Um, and uh, But we're warriors in Christ's kingdom. We are not allowed to fight the way the world fights. We're not allowed to use the weapons the world uses. We reject the weapons of hate, the weapons of intimidation, the weapons of violence, the weapons of lying, the weapons of power. Our greatest weapon is the weapon of prayer because it is actually God who wins the victories, not us. So, God help us, right? And then beyond that, we are also to use the weapons of preaching the gospel and the weapons of love for our neighbor, even love for our enemy. Beyond that, God sanctions no other uh, weapons or arms for, our, for us to use. Will, will prayer, will preaching, will love always win the day? Well, sometimes it will. And it's always a miraculous work of God when it does win the day. But other times it won't. 
because the world will always hate Jesus. And nowadays, that hatred is a little more open than it was in previous generations. Um, I think verse 9 is saying to us that Jesus will never be opened or never be welcomed with open arms. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The ends of the earth belong to Jesus. How is he bringing the world in submission to himself? Uh, He's using that uh, rod of iron. He says he will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. See, our Lord Jesus comes to a God-hating, Christ-defying world. But that's okay, because Christ imposes his reign by force on the ungodly. That's what we mean when we say that God regenerates the, the elect. They're not converting themselves. It's God doing the converting. In spite of the world's vitriol, he will conquer his enemies by the power of the gospel. All of us have people in our lives that we know previously who now love the Lord Jesus. In fact, this just occurred to me. Um, I got a friend request. I I went on Facebook uh, early this morning to make sure I I could do the Facebook Live for for Richard's... um, Sunday school class, and I had a friend request from one of my uh, teammates, classmates from high school. Uh, I played uh, on the left um, side of the line. I was a defensive end on the left side. Uh, I, I won't say his name, um, but his nickname was Boogie. He played. He was defensive end on the right hand side, and we made a good team together. I remember one time we both hit the quarterback at the same time. They had carried the quarterback off the field. I was so happy. So anyway, he sent me a friend request this morning. And um, he has, I've never known him to know the Lord, to be close to the Lord, um, much less submit to the Lord and and trust in him. And he sent me a... uh, a message this morning, just rejoicing at the fact I'm a preacher. So, you know, God is, that the Lord Jesus Christ is conquering the world for himself through the gospel. And they are, the world hates God, the world is rebelling against God, the world is taking up a war council against God, plotting against God. And God says, I chose you from the beginning of the world. You are mine. And he draws them um, powerfully to himself. No man comes to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him. And it is a powerful drawing when our God draws a person to himself. So, the world. Listen to this description of the world that Paul gives us in Titus 3, verses 3 through 5. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Does that sound like today? 
The nature of fallen man has always been evil. 2,000 years later, uh, we don't own a, 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 uh, um, the, the corner, so to speak, on being evil as a generation, every generation. And so, hated by others and hating one another, and then Paul says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. We're hating each other. We're hating God. We're living foolish, disobedient lives. And God says, I'm going to have mercy on you. And he draws us from the world to be his own dear children. As the Lord has, I'm sorry, as the church has tried to accommodate the world, the sovereign lordship of Christ has been de-emphasized. Uh, I think the church, sadly, has sissified Jesus in the way he is presented. But that's not the, the Jesus we meet in Psalm 2. Jesus is full of mercy, but he is also a holy judge. Verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is, kin is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Remember the raging plots of the kings of the earth in verses 1 through 3? God laughing at them at their insane rebellion. Well, now, in verses 10 through 12, he's calling those same kings to repentance. He opens his arms to these rebellious kings who are trying to put Jesus and God to death. He says, verse 11, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And so God is giving these kings of the earth, these rebels that hate him, he's giving them an invitation to come be his children. He's giving them an invitation to submit themselves to his lordship. Uh, when we were in uh, First Kings, at the end of First Kings, I marveled over and over again how this is go on Wednesday nights with the Wednesday night devotions, how uh, God would send Elijah or send some other prophet time and again to Ahab, giving him one appeal after mercy, one appeal after another for mercy. And Ahab sometimes seems like he would be on the verge of taking it and then he would find a way to ignore it. Many times, five or six, seven times that I counted, that God was, was showing Ahab mercy. Here's God giving these, these nations that are raging and plotting against God an invitation to come receive his mercy. These God-hating conspiratorial kings and rulers are called to kiss the Son, 
Now, this is not like the, the kisses that you might get from Jimbo on a Sunday morning. Um, you know, that might be the only upside to the coronavirus pandemic, keeping Jimbo socially distant. <laughs> um, the kiss that, that, um, that is mentioned here in verse 12 when he said, kiss the sun, um, is, is a, the kiss that kings and rulers uh, would receive from loyal subjects. Uh, it's, it's a kiss of submission with the knee bound, kissing the signet ring. And Jesus says, if they refuse to kiss the son, he will be angry and they will perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. The world and all this insane raging and conspiring against God it will end. The nations will be gathered to be judged by Jesus. Matthew twenty-five thirty-one through 33, as I'm closing this sermon. The Lord it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, because he's the king. Before him will be gathered, who? All the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. You will be there. I will be there. Every person who has ever been born into this world will be there. What side will you be on? The right or the left? with the sheep or the goats. Blessed, Psalm 2 ends, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are undone as we have sat for this past half hour under this marvelous revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ in Psalm 2. Lord, we bow the throne of our hearts before you. We kiss the signet ring of King Jesus we submit to him. We entrust ourselves to him. We love him. Therefore, we obey his commandments. And Lord, we confess that in so many ways, because we are, we are still sinners, the very things we hate, we end up doing. The very things we want to do, we don't do. We continue to be wretched people. People who have been redeemed people who have been forgiven, people who have been made righteous, people who have a new nature, but there's still a wretchedness about us. And so we humble ourselves in your presence. We ask God that you would pour out your spirit upon us daily. Help us to serve the Lord Jesus Christ with fear and to rejoice before him always with trembling. 
We pray not only for ourselves. We pray for the nations. As you have extended this invitation to the wicked, even to the kings of the earth that would conspire against you because they think that they should be above you. Lord, we are encouraged that in that invitation, you are bringing, you are justifying the ungodly. Do it, Lord. Do it in our nation. Do it in all the nations of the earth. They need you badly. And you are a merciful God. We lift this prayer to you in Jesus' name. Amen.